What does the phrase national interest mean? I mean, the phrase national interest is used standardly in the academic world. You know, international relations theory claims that states pursue the national interest. Uh, that's the leading principle of all discussion. What is it? I mean, does the CEO of uh, General Electric have the same interest as the janitor who cleans his floors? No, they have totally different interests. Now, there's all kinds of interests. What's called the national interest turns out to be the interest of dominant domestic forces in US society. So the national interest means the interests of the very rich uh, major corporations, the ones who set government policy and so on. That's the national interest. And not the population. The population is basically irrelevant. The population often strongly opposes government policy, and they're simply disregarded. And not just on this case, many others. I say take Cuba. For uh, 50 years, the United States has been waging a war against Cuba. Major terrorist war, not trivial. It's not these jokes about uh, Castro's beard that the press talks about. Major terrorist attacks, thousands of people killed and so on. Uh, an embargo, a crushing embargo that the whole world opposes. How does the US population feel about it? Well, there have been polls since the 1970s. Large majority of the population thinks we should normalize relations with Cuba. Does anybody pay attention to them? No, doesn't make any difference. Uh, in fact, the gap between public opinion and policy is enormous on issue after issue. I mean, take, say, domestic issues. Uh, for, again, about 40 years, there are regular polls uh, asking people what they think about the tax system. Overwhelmingly, people say there should be much higher taxes on the wealthy. Uh, what happens? Taxes on the wealthy go down. You know? uh, and it's the same on issue after issue. We do not live in a society in which the public determines policy. The public's around, you know, but they're basically disregarded unless they force themselves to, uh, into the system by serious activism. And I think that's true of national interest. So let's take national interest in its real sense, the interest of those who are in a position of power in American society uh, to be able to make decisions. What's their interest? Well, lots of interests. Some are straight strategic. Uh, you go back to 1948, the Joint Chiefs of Staff were very impressed with uh, Israel's military performance during the 48 war and uh, recognized, as they put it, that Israel could become a valuable base for American power. They said it's the major military force in the region outside of Turkey and it would be a perfect uh, ally and base for U.S. power. Uh, the uh, oil dictatorships, Saudi Arabia primarily, they made it very clear that they didn't mind. Uh, there was not going to be any threat to U.S. oil interests. In fact, they had their own Saudi Arabian, Saudi Arabia is a family basically, you know, the royal family. They made it quite clear that, uh, that even though they had to publicly condemn Israel, they didn't really mean it. They actually thought it was fine if Israel 
was there. Israel, their concern, remember, at the time was Britain. The main concern of the, in the Arab world was Britain. It, and uh, Jordan, which was, a, was Transjordan at the time, which was a British colony, and the Hashemite uh, uh, rule. And uh, the Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia just driven the Hashemites out of uh, the, uh, you know, the holy territories, Mecca and Medina. They thought they might be coming back. Now, they didn't want that. They wanted a deterrent to Jordan, Transjordan, especially because the British were trying to set up a Hashemite system which would govern both Transjordan and Iraq, which is regarded as a threat, serious threat by Saudi Arabia and what are now the Emirates. And Israel was a kind of a deterrent, so they didn't really mind. And in fact, that continues. Saudi Arabia and Israel have uh, fairly common policies right now. Furthermore, in 1967, crucial year, that's when US, the US-Israel relationship was actually established in its current form. Before that, it was kind of friendly, but nothing unique became unique after 67. Uh, something happened in 67. Uh, Israel provided a great gift to Saudi Arabia and the United States. There was a conflict, there has been a long-standing conflict, between radical Islam and secular nationalism. And the United States, like British Britain before it, has pretty consistently supported radical Islam. Still continues to. Uh, the center of radical Islam is Saudi Arabia, the most extremist uh, radical Islamist state in the world, and also a missionary state. They try to uh, expand their Wahhabist uh, Salafi uh, doctrines all over the place. Uh, and they're the strongest ally of the United States. Some Britain had similar policies. Uh, in 1967, there was a war going on between Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Egypt was the center of secular nationalism. Uh, Israel invaded Egypt and pretty much destroyed uh, its, uh, its, basis, its base in the Arab world, also Syria. Serious blow against secular nationalism, great victory for radical Islam, big victory for the United States, which regarded Nasser's Egypt as the main threat, that's when the special relationship was established. And it continued like that for this time I go on. Uh, it remains a major uh, strategic base. In fact, if you want to know how serious it is, uh, one of the most interesting of the WikiLeaks was a list of uh, uh, re regions of the world that the, United, that the Pentagon regards as super important, have to be protected, you know, no matter what. One of them is right outside Haifa, uh, Rafael Military Industries. It's a high-tech military industry right outside Haifa, one of the places where most of the drone technology was developed. It's so closely linked to U.S. industry and to the Pentagon that they actually shifted their management headquarters to Washington, where the money is. Uh, but it's, it's just essentially part of U.S. military industry. And that's just the beginning. Uh, it's a major the mil for U.S. military industry. Uh, Israel's just a bonanza. Uh, when the U.S. sell uh, gives uh, uh, you know, high-class jets to Israel, of course, Lockheed Martin makes a lot of money. But it's more than that. Uh, when Israel, when the when the United States gives uh, Israel high-tech military equipment, that's a teaser. As they call it in the retail business. 
And Saudi Arabia comes along and says, hey, we want some of that stuff too, and we want a lot more. So Lockheed Martin is happy to sell uh, $60 billion worth of uh, Lockheed Martin and others of second-rate uh, equipment to Saudi Arabia so that they can you know, be happy that they have a lot of this stuff too that they don't know how to use. Uh, so it's a it's terrific bonanza for military industry. Uh, also, Israel uh, provides special services. It can try out advanced military equipment against live targets. That's what they're doing all the time. You can't usually do that, uh, but Israel's doing it constantly. When they attack Gaza, operation at the West Bank, when they invade Lebanon, they've done five times. They are testing advanced U.S. equipment, figuring out what works, and they develop their own equipment, of course. They're a major supplier of uh, advanced uh, military equipment, including equipment for suppression. They train U.S. police forces, for example, and plenty of work in the third world. In fact, uh, when Reagan was blocked from direct support for South Africa, Israel was used as a conduit, and same in Central America. So there's plenty of services like that. But there's a lot more. Uh, one reason is, uh, one factor that tends to be underestimated, I think, is Christian Zionism. Christian Zionism goes back way before Jewish Zionism, way into the 19th century. And it's a very significant elite phenomenon in the United States. Say people like uh, Woodrow Wilson, Harry Truman, and so on, that read the Bible every day, you know, and uh, are uh, believers in the biblical prophecies. Well, the Bible says, uh, you know, God promised the land to Israel, so got to give it to Israel. Uh, in the Roosevelt administration, one of the leading figures, Harold Ickes, described the return of the Jews to Palestine as the greatest event in history. Uh, by now, it's expanded from elite Christian Zionism to mass popular Christian Zionism with the enormous rise of the uh, far-right evangelical Christian movement since mainly pretty much in the 1950s. It was always around, but became expanded and organized, a major base for the Republican Party. And they're super Zionist. Uh, they're also extremely anti-Semitic. Uh, their theology, if you read it, is... Uh, you have to support Israel uh, because that'll lead to Armageddon and everybody gets slaughtered and uh, the souls that are saved rise to heaven and everybody else uh, goes somewhere bad, and uh, including all the Jews. You can't be more anti-Semitic than that. <laughs> but 160,000 Jews can be saved because they're going to uh, you know, recognize Christ in time or so. That's the story. There are tens of millions of Americans who believe this. They're a large part of the base of the Republican Party now. It's one of the reasons why the Republican Party is more extreme in support of Israel than the Democrats are, even though you know, the money and the votes mostly go to Democrats from Jews and liberals. Uh, but uh, and, uh, the, uh, another factor which I think is underestimated is what I mentioned before. Uh, the U.S. is a settler colonial society. It's based on extermination of the native population for the greater good of all. That's the way we, you know, that's of course part of the background. So when you see Israel doing the same thing, you should support it. Uh, it's just instinctive, you know. If we did it, it's gotta be right by definition and they seem to be doing it, so you know, it's gotta be right. 
I think that's a not negligible factor. In, in addition, there is a, there's a significant lobby. So there's an ethnic lobby, which is powerful. But the ethnic lobbies are pretty limited in their power. I mean, they can be overwhelmed by the major lobbies instantly. I mean, the military lobby, for example, dwarfs uh, APEC. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce, you know, the business lobbies dwarf all of them. If they really decided that their interests were being harmed, uh, they would put the lobby out of business in no time. So they're there, but as long as uh, their, their actions support uh, the national interest in the real sense, you know, the interest of the powerful, you know, they're influential. So you can get votes in Congress, you know, 100 senators voting to uh, recognize the capital of Jerusalem, which then they don't do, things like that. Uh, when the lobby runs into conflict with real U.S. power, it just backs off. They're not idiots. And that happens in case after case. But these are plenty of factors. And uh, I think they can be overcome, but we shouldn't underestimate their significance.